Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. With me, Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and Simon Elliott, head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're recording this on uh, Thursday uh, this week because of the Queen's Jubilee Bank Holiday Weekend. And we'll mention a little thing about that in a moment. But uh, first of all, Simon, we've had uh, three days of trading this week. And uh, can you give us the usual picture on that? Well, a short week, but a positive week as well, actually. So for the second consecutive week, we've seen investment companies in positive territory. So the sector was up about 0.6% over that three-day period. And that actually represented an outperformance of the wider UK market. That was up about 0.3% in the form of the FTSE All Share Index. In terms of the average discount, well, that probably widened out a little bit, actually. Probably started the week about 7.3%, probably ended Wednesday at about 7.5%. And that compares with an average of 5.4% so far this year. But obviously, lots going on in the world. A lot of commentary about the oil price this week. We saw a partial ban from the European Union in terms of Russian oil. Obviously, that had implications for the oil price, though. Later in the week, we saw reports of Saudi Arabia willing to increase its output and therefore the price moderating again. Um, there was positive news from China in as much as Shanghai reopened. Obviously, China's economy has been hit by the zero COVID policy. And in fact, its GDP growth has been downgraded to about between about three and four percent. And that compares with the official forecast there of about five and a half percent. Uh, and we also had some quite headline-grabbing uh, statements come out from various people. So Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, warned of an economic hurricane. And we also saw the Bank of America uh, talk about an existential crisis for sterling. Back on the political front in the UK, it appears that uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson might be edging closer to a no-confidence vote. Maybe uh, tales of him being a greased pig may have been uh, somewhat overstated. But certainly, despite it being a short week, there's been quite a bit going on. There certainly has. And in terms of, if we just look at the kind of big picture for the moment in terms of uh, you know bonds versus equities, what have we been seeing there? Obviously, we've had uh, these long run seven weeks of the equity market falling, at least in the, in the States, the uh, S&P 500. That reversed last week and, as you say, has continued into this week. But bond yields have also uh, edged up a little bit as well. So this kind of continuing debate, I suppose it's fair to say, amongst investors, where what's likely to happen is going to be persistent inflation and therefore you know, higher interest rates from the Fed and other central banks. Or, on the other hand, fears of an economic slowdown as a result of what's happening already uh, in response to the uh, interest rate rises and the global inflation crisis. And that would then tend to suggest that we would see something of a reversal with uh, you know, poor equity markets and falling bond yields. So uh, is that the kind of flavour you get from talking to your clients, Simon? There is this sort of, I think, quite significant divergence of opinion emerging about which direction we're going in from here. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think as we talked about it in recent podcasts, I think it's a very difficult period of time to be an investor be it uh, professional or just your own money, frankly. There's some quite big decisions to be made. I still think, although we've had a better few weeks, clearly, I, it still feels as if we're in a bit of a risk-off environment. I think there are a few people willing to put their heads above the parapet and have a little go. But at the same time, it would be wrong to suggest that uh, people are piling into the market at this stage. Well, while we're on the subject of performance, uh, let's have a quick chat about the Queen's Jubilee. It's nice to have a holiday, of course, but um, let's have a look at uh, investment trusts in the context of the Queen's reign, shall we? I mean, the Queen is now obviously notching up 70 years as the monarch of this country. And uh, I'm going to ask you a question, Simon. How many investment trusts do you think that it still exists today were in existence in 1952 when the Queen uh, started her reign? Is obviously a very good question. I mean, the investment companies universe, depending on exactly how you cut it, is somewhere between about 300 and 400 investment companies. Certainly the ones that we cover at Winterflood, we probably about 320 or so. Of those, I suspect probably about 10% or so might have kind of dated back pre-1952. I mean, I'll give you a Winterflood spread if that's okay. So, I mean, I'm, you know, in the region of 30 to 40 would seem about right. 
Yeah, well, as I expected, you got that exactly right. It's certainly in that range. It's 30 to 40. <laughs> there is some dispute about how many, actually. The AIC put out a press release this week, which I think mentioned the figure of 35. When I counted them, I came to a slightly higher figure. But of course, as always in these issues, we we need a referee to arbitrate on what actually the right number is. I mean, the AIC list didn't include 3i, for example, which is often excluded from all the uh, investment trust performance calculations. But that was started in uh, 1945 as part of the post-war reconstruction. And then you can have a quibble about some double counting and so on. And finally, of course, there's also the issue of whether or not Scottish investment trust uh, should be included in the statistics. What would you say about that? Well, I mean, Scottish Investment Trust is still in existence, obviously for not too much longer. And it's obviously has a, quite a, a long pedigree. So for the time being, yes, I think it probably should be. <laughs> well, I think they originally said the takeover by JP Morgan or the, the combination with JP Morgan was going to happen at the end of the first quarter. But it's still dragging on, as these things tend to do. Uh, at least that's my memory of what uh, what they said. How is that one doing out of interest? How is, uh, I mean, Scottish Investment Trust, I think we talked about this at the time, the announcement, it was still trading at a discount. If you'd actually kind of held it for the last, uh, say, six months or whatever figures you've got, how would you have done? You've done quite well, I imagine. Yeah, no, it hasn't performed uh, too badly at all, actually. I mean, it's worth noting that though it is the Scottish Investment Trust, it has actually been managed by JP Morgan Asset Management since earlier this year. I think they took that over in about January time. And it's run on the same basis as JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. So the portfolio is virtually identical, as I understand it. And the JP Morgan Fund has performed well. And obviously, so has Scottish Investment Trust. If you actually look at the numbers, certainly over the last six months, which is a very short time period, clearly, but for the purpose of this conversation, the NEV total return is up 3% or so. uh, And that compares with a decline of 4% for the FTSE world and a weighted average decline in that global peer group of about 27%. Obviously, that's skewed by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, amongst others. So, yeah, not a bad period. In terms of the rating, it's it's around about NEV, um, trading around NEV at the moment. Right. So I think from memory, at the start of the year, it was still on around a 5 or 6% discount or something like that. Anyway, so that's been interesting. And, uh, well, I doubt we'll be around anyway in another 70 years' time to... <laughs> continue this uh, experience but um, noting those uh, historical survivors those spended 35 or however number we think it is they're still around and uh, interesting though one of the other things I noticed uh, looking through the figures is it was a very kind of uh, volatile period if you like for um, investment company launches so if you look at at the data there's almost nothing between 1930 and 1945 for example uh, no new investment companies, at least new investment companies that have survived to this day. And then again, after the war, there was only 3i and one other, I think, Henderson European Focus in the 1940s. And then the next one wasn't until 1954. So it sort of underlines the fact that there have been historically decades when we haven't seen any new investment trusts or very few launched. And then other periods when we see a huge numbers. But I guess the point there is that uh, if we compare it with now, uh, is it easier or more difficult, do you think, to launch an investment trust now than it would have been, say, before the Second World War? Um, well, I, I can't tell you exactly what the fundraising conditions were like before the Second World War. But I mean, obviously, we've talked on a number of occasions about the fact that it is difficult to launch an investment trust company. I mean, we saw 15 IPOs in 2021. That was a pretty decent harvest, so to speak. But we haven't seen any so far this year, and certainly it would appear that the IPO window is closed for the time being. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about fundraising. Uh, That's a good feed into this particular topic. So this week we have had one fundraising I think we can talk about, and that is Bluefield Solar Income Fund, ticker BSIF, uh, which, as I recall, they extended the closing date for this one, did they not, because of what had happened uh, globally, but uh, it's finished now. So what, uh, what was the outcome? Yeah, that's right. So just to kind of remind you, originally, this deal was meant to close on the 25th of May. It was postponed. And that was on the back of that article in the FT about the potential tax on energy companies, on energy generators. That saw a sell-off on that particular day for a number of wind and solar investment companies. So they put their uh, fundraising plans back a week. That probably looks like the right decision because they have been successful. They did raise the £150 million that they were looking to, that represents about 23% of the issued capital just prior to the issue. And those shares were issued at 130p, that represented a 4% premium to the NAV. And it's the first time they've come to the market to raise money since July last year. At that stage, they raised 
£105 million. But those new shares will start trading on Tuesday, the 7th of June. Okay, and the price of those, what was the price of the issue? It was about 130p, was it something like that? Yes, that's right, 130p, and they closed on Wednesday at 131p. Okay, so nice success there for the Bluefield Solar team. Before we move on, we might actually just quickly mention there have been some uh, index changes. We might cover those as far as they affect investment trusts. Uh, This is the uh, regular review of the FTSE All Share Index and other indices. So tell us what uh, the outcome was, Simon, because I think you're, are you still involved in deciding all this? Is that part of your many, many tasks? No, it's not actually. I have no input into this whatsoever. And frankly, it's quite a laborious task. So that's probably uh, something best avoided. But yes, it's worth noting. So this was actually the annual FTSE UK index review. So the index is rebalanced on a quarterly basis, but once a year in June, they do an annual review. And the difference is that the kind of scope is a little bit wider. So they look at liquidity of uh, companies and also it's a little bit easier to get in, a little bit easier to drop out as well. So in terms of the annual review, it was announced at the close of play on Wednesday, the 1st of June. It takes effect at the close of Friday, the 17th of June. In terms of investment companies, there were no changes on the FTSE 100. Obviously, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust remains in that space, as does Pershing Square, I seem to remember. FNC Investment Trust weren't too far off getting promotion into the FTSE 100. And that's kind of interesting in itself because there have been moments in time when FNC, or as it used to be called, Foreign and Colonial, did pop into the FTSE 100. And it was normally at a time when the markets had sold off. It was always quite a good signal that maybe the, the markets had, had hit a bottom for the time being. But no changes this time round to the FTSE 100. In terms of the mid-cap, we've seen a relegation. Bailey Gifford US growth has dropped out or will drop out of the mid-cap, the FTSE 215, or dropping to the small cap. I mean, that's perhaps not a great surprise given that its share price is down about 47% so far this year. Moving in the opposite direction, we've got three investment companies actually. So Merchants Trust, which is part of Allianz Global Investors, that is being promoted up, as is Supermarket Income REIT, which is actually a new entry into the old share. So this isn't a promotion. This will go straight in to the mid cap. And I think that follows, again, off the top of my head, I think they were either AIM traded or on the specialist fund markets. I think they're on AIM, actually. And they've come to the main market. And that means they are eligible to go in. Also, Target Healthcare REIT as well will be promoted from the small cap to the mid cap. At the kind of the bottom end, those investment companies who've been relegated from the FTSE small cap or on the 17th of June. And this is significant because it means all those index players that at the moment sit on their register will have to sell at that stage. But there's a whole bunch of names here. There's ICG Longbow Senior Secured UK Property Debt Investments, which is not a succinct name. We've got JP Morgan Russian Securities, uh, and we've got SLF Realization Fund, and that's an ordinary share class and a C share as well. So they will all drop out of the all share entirely. Those investment companies actually being promoted in to the FTSE small cap and therefore the FTSE all share. But I'll run through these. It's BlackRock Energy and Resources Income Trust. I mean, that's done very well this year. That's up 45% in share price terms. CQS, Natural Resources Growth and Income. Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust, Foresight Sustainable Forestry Company, and Oryx International Growth Fund. So quite a lot of activity in the investment company sector, and one suspects market makers will be busy on the 17th of June. Indeed. So just to remind us then, you've obviously mentioned one of the effects, which is if you drop out, you're no longer a target for index funds. Um, But in general terms, what is the experience? Do these um, expected movements, are they kind of priced in before the actual change happens? In other words, do investors kind of buy and sell and market makers buy and adjust their prices so that when the actual change happens on June the 17th or whatever it is, that effect is already priced in? Is that what one would expect to happen? Or is there still a kind of boost when you do go into the index uh, on the actual day? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there will be some investors and and I guess market makers as well who will kind of position themselves on the basis of this. But equally, from a kind of passive investor, so the index fund point of view, until that kind of close of 17th of June, these companies are not part of the universe or or still continue to be. So it all happens at that day. And they're not too worried at the price it happens. It's just that's the starting point. So particularly for a relatively illiquid investment company, to be promoted into the all share, you can see a real jump in their in their rating at that moment in time and equally for those investment companies that are dropping out you know it's a relatively 
significant amount of stock coming in the other direction. So it can be quite material, particularly for those smaller, uh, less liquid names. Yes, I mean, I guess there's not much surprise about most of these moves. It'd be astonishing if JP Morgan Russian Securities remained in the in the index, given what's happened in the last few months. And also, I mean, most of the trusts that are being promoted into the index, they're mainly in the renewable space. I would be surprised to see the Foresight Forestry Fund there, because that's pretty new, isn't it? I mean, don't you have to have some kind of history before you get moved into, into the index? Again, it's a good point. So for the annual review, there's a size element, which obviously they've met, but they're also a liquidity criteria as well. So again, I'm not an expert in this, but I think my recollection is that you have to have kind of at least a 20 trading day history, and you have to demonstrate within that period that you can offer sufficient liquidity. I mean, what it's worth noting that invariably with investment companies, there are exceptions. There is, in theory, at least 100% liquidity, as opposed to some of these kind of trading companies where there might be a large founder's stake or, or something, and therefore they'll investability weighting is reduced, and that's part of the index rules. With investment trust companies, invariably, there's 100% investability. There is There are some exceptions to that, though. Okay, so it's called quite technical. And then I guess the only other comment I might make up there, or, you, or invite you to have a comment on it, would be, I mean, I guess the fact that the Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust has, has been moved down from mid-cap to small-cap and the merchants has moved up, that's to some extent a reflection of the broader sort of changes in style, style rotation that we've seen in the last few months. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, as we've talked about for a number of months now, it's been a very difficult period to be a growth investor. And equally, UK equity income, that subsector um, overall, there are exceptions, but overall seems to be doing reasonably well this year. And obviously, merchants would be one of the strongest performers in that space. But it's worth noting that the move between the mid cap and the small cap it doesn't necessarily have too much of an impact in terms of you know, you know trading around it. The kind of big differences is where you come into the, the, the FTSE All Share or get expelled from the FTSE All Share. That's where you, you can really see the kind of price moves. And a final sort of factual question, just to remind listeners, I mean, roughly how many investment companies are there in the All Share Index? Or precisely, if you know the figure off the top of your head. So. I'd love to give you the figure precisely, but I'm going to say roughly about 190 or so. Right. So... It's a significant proportion anyway. It's a significant minority kind of percentage of the all share index. Yeah, that's right. And and it's worth noting that particularly in the mid cap, obviously there are 250 names in the mid cap. There's 100 names in the FTSE 100 as well, but uh, there's only one or two investment companies in that space. But in the mid cap, again, I don't know the exact number at the moment, but it's a significant amount of investment companies find themselves in the mid cap. So those 250 companies I'm going to say about at least 50. I might be I might be a little bit out there, but uh, 50 are investment companies. might be a few more, actually. Okay, so let's move on and let's talk about the results. And we're going to kick off with Capital Gearing Trust, uh, ticker CGT, which has been uh, celebrating its own kind of sort of jubilee uh, this year. <laughs> it's 40 years since Peter Spiller took over as the manager of this trust. Uh, the coronation. <laughs> exactly, it's coronation. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah. He's now the longest serving uh, fund manager in the investment trust sector. I have to mention that I have just written a little short history of Capital Gearing Trust to mark this particular anniversary. And uh, if you're interested in that, you can find it on uh, the Moneymakers website. But anyway, here we are. It's uh, 40 years since Peter Spiller took over and uh, they've had some latest annual results. And how do they look? Yeah, a decent set of results, actually. So these were annual results for the year ended 31st of March. They generated an NAV total return of 10.5% in that time. That compares the rise of 9% for RPI inflation, and the MSCI UK index was up 18.7% in that period. But it's worth noting that Capital Gearing Trust is very clear what it's trying to do. The objective is to preserve and over time grow shareholders' real wealth. So there's very much, as the name was just a kind of emphasis on capital preservation. It's worth noting as well, the share price total return came in at 10% and they've pursued effectively a zero discount policy since 2015, July 2015. And in this period, they issued about 7.1 million shares. They raised over 350 million pounds and there were no buybacks. In other words, they've seen quite strong demand for their shares. But in terms of the performance, well, that came from both the equity and the bond portions of the portfolio. The weighting to inflation-related assets has increased. And this is something that Peter and the other investment managers, so it's Alistair Lang and Chris Clovia, have been focused on for some time now. So there are government index-linked stocks in the portfolio. They've also got property and infrastructure exposure. And actually, towards the end of 2021, they initiated some positions in power and energy plays. And that was done via ETFs. And unsurprisingly, they performed quite well in the first quarter of this year. 
So risk assets accounted for 44% of the portfolio at the end of March. And there's a sizable portion, about 50% in government index linked stocks. Uh, they've got some short dated conventional bonds, preference shares and treasury bills. They've got some gold and cash that accounted for about 6%. And they've made it clear again, the intention is to buy into equities when the time is appropriate. So they're certainly not chasing the market at any stage. But they are focused on inflation, as I mentioned, and they said they, they believe that it's likely to remain more sticky than the market is forecasting in the year ahead. Indeed. And I think they've been warning about the risk of higher inflation for some time. And uh, they were perhaps a little bit premature in terms of the actual inflation that's been delivered, but uh, they have been proved right in that sense. Capital Eritas is interesting. I mean, when I was uh, researching this history, it is fascinating because actually its history falls into two main parts. When it started out, the reason it was called Capital Gearing, it was a very small kind of uh, family, in fact, the investment vehicle in Belfast, based in Belfast. But it had a lot of gearing in the early years. So when Peter Spiller took over in 1982, it turned out that, that obviously was the start of the great bull market of the late 20th century. And uh, it was very highly geared and produced some spectacular returns, you know, 20, 30% per annum. And then they had this change of policy around the turn of the century or just before the turn of the century, where they eventually moved to this kind of capital preservation model. Uh, but the historical record is still extraordinary. I mean, 40 years compound total return of 15% per annum over 40 years is, is a pretty extraordinary record. That's definitely kind of getting close to on a par with uh, Warren Buffett and so on. And they've only ever had one year, one negative year when they were down, and that was by just 2%. So uh, they have got this extraordinary record. And of course, whether they can keep it, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, it has been extraordinary. But that also helps to explain, I think, why they've been so popular in, in recent years. They've moved to this zero discount policy. And uh, they've continued to grind out returns, nothing like the normal 15% per annum they have done historically, but uh, tends to be single digit figures. And they and other trusts like them, uh, personal assets and so on, have been very popular, have they not, Simon? You talked about how much shares they've issued. I guess they provide a kind of valuable option to investors who are either risk averse by nature or risk averse by circumstance. Anyway, what do you think about them? What's your take on their, uh, it's quite remarkable historical performance? I would tend to agree. I think I think all those comments are entirely valid. I mean, in the rather splendid booklet that you've been involved in, I think there was a rather good quote on the back page, uh, and it was an excerpt from a letter sent to uh, the team at CG Asset Management or the Capital Gearing Investment Team from an investor. And the quote is, we have relied on you to hold our coats whilst we fish in riskier waters, safe in the knowledge that we can get our coats back when the markets get chilly. And I thought that's rather a nice quote, deserved to go on the back page of that particular booklet. And I think it sums up quite nicely. I mean, when we look at these kind of capital preservation vehicles, I mean, there's Capital Gaming Trust, obviously, there's the personal assets and there's Ruffer as well. They've all been very, very popular uh, and they've all performed well. And the interesting thing from a kind of an analyst point of view is there are some things that they share in common. So that view on inflation, for instance, I think that's held across all three of those investment companies. But they're all kind of trying to address that and how to invest in slightly different ways. So their portfolios are not exactly the same and they invest in different uh, asset classes or approach it in a multitude of ways. But if you actually look at the numbers, and I'm looking here at the five-year share price to return numbers, I mean, the annualized performance uh, is coming out. So we've got personal assets here on about 4.9%. This is annualized performance. So over that time, personal assets up 27%. It equates to about 4.9%. We've got capital gearing trust about 6.5%. And roughly a 7.3 annualized share price performance. And I think that to me seems what these kind of vehicles are trying to do. You know, frankly, I'd be quite surprised and quite worried if they suddenly posted a return of 20% or 30% in a period of time, because that's not how they've set out their stall. But you're hoping for real returns. I think it's kind of mid high single digits. That's what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and over the last five years, that's pretty much what they've managed. Yes, and indeed, it's going to be interesting because if we are going into a period of persistently high inflation, if we are, they're going to have to produce slightly higher returns because they're trying to achieve real returns after allowing for inflation. So they are going to have to uh, produce slightly higher figures to retain their credibility, if you like, in that particular sense. So it is very interesting. And I think the point you make about the different approach they have is very valid. I mean, Peter Spiller started off as a 
well, still is, uh, you know, he is a specialist in investment trust himself. In the 80s, he was only investing in investment trusts and investing in some of the obscure share classes. In those days, they often had multiple share classes. Uh, and he was kind of doing the numbers on some of the more obscure opportunities there. Whereas uh, someone like Rafa, I don't think, you know, very rarely invests in investment trusts. So you're absolutely right. It's a very different approach. And uh, I think that's very useful to investors. Certainly is. Okay, so let's move on. That's Capital Gearing Trust. Uh, and let's move on and talk about uh, some UK trusts now, kicking off with BMO Capital and Income Investment Trust, ticker BCI, who've had some interim results. That's right, interim results to the end of March. They had an NAV to return was down 1.3% in that period, and that compares to a rise of 4.7% for the FTSE All Share Index. BMO Capital and Income Investment Trust sits in the UK equity income subsector. So obviously, uh, the dividend is an important part of the story. I think they're an AIC dividend hero as well. I think about 28 years of of consecutive dividend growth. But they've declared a 5.3p dividend in respect to the period. That represents a 1% increase in comparison with the equivalent period in 2021. Um, In terms of the underlying revenue, well, that was up 60%. So again, this is something that we talked about, this idea of uh, these UK investment trusts benefiting from the increase in dividends being paid to them. So their earnings per share was up about 70% in the period. But Julian Kane, the manager of this one, he's been there since 1997, actually. So 25 years, that's probably worth a jubilee of some sort, uh, I would imagine. But it's an investment trust company that is uh, probably differentiated by its owned, it has about 80% of its shares in the hand of savings plans that sit on the, the BMO platform. Wow, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. What was its history before it became BMO Capital Income Trust? I like to ask these questions just to see whether... <laughs> <laughs> it certainly wouldn't have been a BMO Trust when it started, I'm sure, in 1992. Or perhaps it was. No, it wouldn't have been BMO at that stage. I mean, certainly yeah. when I came across it, it was F&C, Capital and Income. And I think it merged with another F&C fund. I'm going to say F&C, Income and Growth in the noughties. But certainly, as I say, Julian's been there a long time, very experienced manager. Indeed. OK, so let's move on and talk about another BMO UK High Income, ticker BHI. Tell us about that one. Or perhaps you can tell us what that used to be called as well. <laughs> I do know the answer to that one. Okay, so these were annual results for the year to the 31st of March. The NAV total return was up 1.9%. That compared to a rise of the FTSE All Share of 13%. So they did underperform. The ordinary share price total return was up 0.6% as the discount widened from 8% to 9%. And the B share price was up 1.6% as its discount widened out as well. This is one of the kind of differentiators of this investment trust. They have an ordinary share class, which pays a dividend and it sits in the UK equity income subsector. And then it has a B share. Now, this is slightly unusual. So rather than pay a dividend, it makes a return of capital to its shareholders, which happens to be at the equivalent level of the, of the dividend that the ordinary share class pays out. So obviously there will be tax implications for that, and that's a long-standing arrangement. But NAV underperformance, well, that was essentially in the second half of this financial year, and that was a reflection of the fact that the portfolio is underweight, the oil and gas and the mining sectors. And as we discussed, if you've been underweight, those two sectors in the UK market over the last six months or so, you will have struggled the earnings per share was up quite significantly, actually. So it came in at 3.61p. And that meant that they could increase the distributions for ordinary and B shareholders up about 2.8% year on year. And that represents the ninth consecutive annual increase. They also announced a name change. So BMO has been acquired, or certainly its uh, EMEA asset management business has been acquired by Columbia Threadneedle Investments. And so BMO UK High Income which I'm going to say once upon a time used to be called Investors Capital, but no doubt you've probably got the answer to that uh, in front of you. Um, But it will change its name and it will become CT UK High Income Trust. And that should happen towards the start of July. I I don't know if they need shareholder approval for that one, but that's when they expect that to happen. And they're also changing the management fee as well. uh, And so that's going down from 0.65 to 0.6% of NAV. Now, the other thing to note that as the fund has underperformed its benchmark in the five-year period to the end of March, it will face a continuation vote at its upcoming AGM. Uh, And this one's managed by Philip Webster. He's been there since March 2017. 
So how big is this trust and what are the odds of it uh, passing its continuation vote? Is it is it still relevant in the current environment? If you look at the two share classes, so it has got an unusual capital structure, but if you look at the two together, then it's probably got assets of about £115 million or so at the moment. So a kind of aggregate market cap just sub £100 million. It obviously has historically appealed to more retail investors. I think it's fair to say the yield or the kind of distribution element works out about 6.2%, 6.3%. I mean, the fact is it's trading on a, a bit of a discount at the moment. Both share classes are on about a 7% discount. And the fact that that hasn't kind of narrowed in on the back of the news is going to be a continuation vote, probably to me at least suggests that it should be able to navigate that. But if you look at the shareholder base on this one, there's quite a high proportion savings plans, retail investors, the, the kind of various platforms. Um, but there are one or two value-orientated investors' names on the shareholder register as well. And I guess, it's is it fair to say that historically, these kind of continuation votes, not every retail investor is going to be voting on this in practice? Yeah, no, and you make a good point. And that's one of the issues. I mean, that's not just on continuation votes, but that's in general. Getting retail investors to vote on their shares on a regular basis has become more problematic, particularly for those investors that use platforms such as Hargreaves, Interactive Investor, AJ Bell, and so on and so forth uh, to hold their investment trust companies. So you can absolutely vote your shares, but it might not be very straightforward. So what that means is that kind of turnout can become an issue and on some votes, particularly where there might be institutional investors involved as well, who tend to vote in a block, that can be problematic for some. Okay, so that's when we might uh, keep an eye out for see what happens there. There were a lot of high-income trusts back in the 1990s, as I recall. Foreign and Colonial had one as well. But they didn't always uh, do particularly well. But, I mean, the 6% yield looks pretty attractive in the current environment. But do you think that kind of high-income concept is still kind of valid? Is it one that uh, still has an appeal to people? Because obviously the danger with a high-income strategy is that, you know, what you gain on the yield, you, you lose on the capital growth. And uh, that certainly was the experience of one or two high-income trusts back in the day. What would you say? You make a good point. So in the case of BMO UK High Income, they had earnings per share of 3.61p and they're paying out 5.45p. So in other words, that dividend is uncovered. So you know, you have to take a bit of an opinion on that, whether that's just a short-term thing or whether they'll be able to kind of close the gap. Uh, people need income. People want sources of yield. I mean, you can see that the number of investment companies with a range of asset classes offering yields of 4 5 6% are in favour and probably more on the alternative income side. But even in the UK equity income space at the moment, there are a number of steady performers that have delivered attractive and growing yields over a period of time. And, and certainly investors would seem to favour those. So I don't think the concept is necessarily broken at all, but it is a consideration in terms of how long can you pay an uncovered dividend for. So just comparing that to BMO Capital and Income, for example, I mean, I, I think their yield is obviously lower. It's, I think it's somewhere between 35 4%, something like that. And their dividend was roughly covered, right? So that sort of illustrates the kind of dynamics there. Okay, so let's move on and talk about overseas trusts. We've got a few to get through. So let's kick off with Aberdeen Japan Investment Trust, ticker AJIT. This one has produced some annual results to the 31st of March this year. That's right. And another difficult period, actually. So NAV total return was down about 10% or so. That compared with a decline of 2.7% for the Topics benchmark index. The NAV per share, that kind of fell about 11.7% or so. So there's basically a dividend as part of the story. But yes, a more difficult period. I mean, in terms of the Aberdeen approach, it's consistent with you know their wider investment approach. In other words, there's emphasis on good uh, quality companies. The portfolio consisted of about 68 holdings, certainly at the end of April, but a, a more difficult period for it. Interestingly enough, the net gearing stood at about 11% or so at the end of March. Okay, now we'll talk about Bearings Emerging EMEA Opportunities, another bit of a mouthful, ticker BEMO. They've had interim results for the sixth month to the 31st of March, and I dare say they had a few problems. Yeah, they did. Another tough period. So the NAV total return was down about 22.4%. That compared with a decline of 13.7% for the MSCI Emerging Markets EMEA index. In share price terms, uh, similar to the NAV, actually down about 22.6% as the, as the discount just narrowed out a little bit. Unsurprisingly, perhaps the underperformance was largely attributable to investments in Russian securities. The portfolio continues to hold Russian shares, but they're all effectively valued at nil or valued at zero. So what did work for them in the period? 
whether it was holdings in Saudi Arabia, South Africa, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar. Uh, certainly they were amongst the strongest performers as well. Uh, in terms of the revenue return per share, that came in at uh, 8.02p and they've declared a dividend of 6p. So that was a covered dividend. But uh, that compared with 15p per share in the first half of 2021. So what's happened here is that given the current geopolitical volatility, the board has decided to pay a lower interim dividend covered by income with a view to paying possibly a higher proportion of annual in, uh, dividend by way of a final dividend. So basically, let's see how it goes. The other thing to note is that one of the investment managers on the fund, Maria Shoschenschner, undoubtedly pronounced terribly badly, she's actually resigned with effect from July. But you've got uh, Matthias Silla and Adnam El Arabi who continue to share the responsibilities. But yeah, interesting one. It was only back in November 2020 that this particular fund changed its mandate at that stage or before that stage. It was bearings emerging Europe, and then they widened out the mandate to include Middle East and Africa. So I suspect they're probably quite glad they did that now. Indeed. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about another trust that's had a tough year, and that is Fidelity China Special Situations, ticker FCSS. They've had final results for the year to the 31st of March, uh, as well as the Aberdeen Japan Investment Trust we mentioned earlier. What do their numbers look like? Yeah, tough, tough numbers, actually. So the NAV total return was down 34.9%. That compared to a decline of 29.3% for the MSCI China index. Share price terms down 39.2% as the discount widened from about 1% to nearer to 7 8%. The key detractor was actually gearing. Gearing took the performance down by about 11%. And actually, the stock selection in relative terms was positive. But obviously, gearing hurt. And, and obviously, the Chinese market's been a very difficult place to be. However, the manager, who's a chap called Dale Nichols, who's been responsible since about 2014, he believes that the combination of weak sentiment and low valuations has created a number of opportunities. In fact, I think we talked about this a bit last week because they kind of provide an update to the marketplace and they've increased their net gearing up to 24%. They've also closed off the majority of their short positions. It's also worth noting they've got some unlisted positions in the portfolio, about 13% or so. And that includes ByteDance that people might have heard of. And actually, more recently than that, two unlisted positions have applied for listings in Hong Kong as well. It's also worth noting on this one that the discount control policy looks to maintain the discount in single digits. In other words, all being well, it'd be a surprise to see this go out to a 10% discount. And they bought 1.5 million shares in the period. So uh, obviously, keeping that gearing last year was a mistake, but they're doubling down rather than cutting the gearing. So that's an interesting reflection of the fact that obviously uh, the manager and the board, who I mean tend to make these decisions in tandem, I think it's fair to say, it is the board's responsibility ultimately, they seem to be uh, saying, well, you know, look what we're doing rather than, you know, what other market commentators are saying. Very interesting. Is that gearing level, I mean, does that differ from the other trusts in the China sector? In other words, are they more highly geared than, you know, the other big two in that sector, which is the Bailey Gifford and the JP Morgan trusts? Is a good question. So the JP Morgan Fund definitely has some gearing. I've got about 18% or so at the moment. The Aberdeen China Fund, which is the newcomer to the sector, I'm not entirely sure whether that's geared or not, I've got to be honest. And I don't think the Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust is geared as well, or if it is, it's very modest. So I think the answer to your question is that the Fidelity Fund will have the most gearing at work. Right. And yet over the last year, its performance actually is slightly better than uh, most of the others. That suggests that its stock selection has been a persistently uh, helpful factor. Yeah, it's a, it, look, the Fidelity China Fund is an interesting one. It has quite a strong mid and small cap focus. So you look at the kind of list of names, there'll be some very familiar names there. Or people are familiar with the Chinese market, but the kind of the bulk or a significant proportion of the portfolio is in the kind of one to five billion Pound market cap, so they're kind of more mid cap names. Um, you know, they're certainly not uh, tiny companies, but that's where Dale Nichols has, has put the emphasis. And it's quite, again, my recollection is that the portfolio there's quite a large number of names in that portfolio as well. So there'll be, um, uh, you know, long list, quite a large tail. Well, we talked before about the sort of dichotomy of views. I mean, if you take one view about China, you, I mean, there's there will be some opportunities if the Chinese market does recover. Uh, then you would think that these a uh, lot of these Chinese investment trusts would do pretty well because they have sold off pretty dramatically. Uh, but that is a view to take, and the gearing obviously will continue to work 
on both sides of the of that particular view. Let's talk about JP Morgan Asia growth and income. Similar period, annual results to the 31st of March, ticker JAGI. Uh, tell us about this one. So this was an interesting set of results. So basically, the NAV total return was down 6.9% in that 12-month period to the end of March. And that was actually in line with the benchmark. And in fact, so the share price total return also came in at 6.9%. So no underperformance for those, sadly, no outperformance as well. So what worked in this particular period? Well, the overweight exposure to financials turned out to be positive, including banks in Indonesia, China, and Singapore. And also they benefited from holdings in oil and gas companies, perhaps unsurprisingly. Being slightly underweight, China was also positive, as was being overweight Korea and Indonesia. However, being an underweight Taiwan and India detracted a little. But at a stock level, it was the kind of growth stocks in the technology and media sectors that detracted. That's obviously unsurprisingly. And also Chinese healthcare names were hit. But the best performer in the period in terms of stocks was Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. That was the largest position at the end of March. Probably the other thing to note about this one is that it's one of the enhanced dividend payers within the JP Morgan stable. There's a number of these. Uh, and just to remind people, they look to pay 1% of the NAV as a dividend each quarter. So what you don't have is that kind of nice dividend kind of progression that a number of investment trusts have, so the dividend can rise and fall with net assets. But certainly in the first two quarters of this period, uh, they pay two dividends of 4.5p and 4.2p respectively. So you can see how that dividend's come down a little bit. I mean, in some of the other cases, this kind of approach has helped the trusts. Uh, they've, they tend to trade pretty well. But this one trades on a discount. Is that kind of unusual? Yeah, so I've got it on a discount of about 11% or so at the moment. And it has been derated, actually. So when they introduced this policy a little while ago, that did lead to a, a re-rating. In fact, I think it probably might have hit a, a small premium at one stage. But certainly over the last 12 months, its average rating has been a 3% discount. As I say, it's on 11% at the moment. So it has been derated. To be fair, it's in good company. So if you look at the kind of subsector of the Asia-Pacific income subsector, the average discount at the moment is probably something about 8% or so, and that compares with 5% over the previous 12 months. So Asia very much out of favour. Yes, it's been a tricky market to navigate because you've basically had to be underweight China and overweight India, basically. It seems to be the, the general position. If you weren't there, then you were going to struggle. Let's move on and talk about some specialist trusts, kicking off with Biotech Growth Trust, ticker BIOG. They've also had annual results for the year to the 31st of March. And um, I'm afraid, yet again, then, not too pretty to look at. Yeah, another tough period, actually. So the NAV total return was down 33.8%. That compared with a decline of 7.4% for the NASDAQ Biotechnology Index. In share price terms, even worse, actually. Share price total return was down 37% as the discount moved from about 1% to 6%. But the underperformance reflected the portfolio's strong and actually long-held bias to small caps or what they call emerging biotech names and also the weighting to Chinese companies. So again, we're seeing some familiar themes here. So 13% of the portfolio was exposed to Chinese companies at the end of March. And it's worth noting that all the Chinese exposure is non-benchmark. So there were no Chinese companies in the particular index. Uh, gearing also detracted by about 4% or so. But in terms of how the portfolio is set up, it's 38% overweight small cap stocks, 33% underweight large cap stocks. And that reflects where the manager, Jeff Xu, who's been responsible for this one for a period of time, he's part of uh, the Orbimed team. And we're going to talk about this investment trust sister fund in a moment. But this is how the portfolio has been set up. And over the long term, it's certainly benefited with the performance, though obviously very difficult in this last year or so. It's also worth noting that they've got some private investments. They had three of those at the end of March, and that represented about 8% of NAV. And the manager has noted that history would suggest that the biotech sector is overdue a period of outperformance. And he believes that the rebound could be the result of clarity on drug pricing legislation. That's particularly uh, issue in the US, obviously, M&A activity, positive clinical data, or strong product launches. And actually, Gearing stood at 8% or so at the end of March. Well, let's talk about the other one next, then, which is Worldwide Healthcare Trust, ticker WWH. They've had annual results for the same period. So the Biotech Growth Trust was down, as you say, more than 30%, but 
the uh, Worldwide Healthcare Trust did rather better. Well, yes, it did better in as much as the NAV total return was down 5.8%, though that still represented quite a significant underperformance of its benchmark. The MSCI World Healthcare Index, that was up 20.4%. And again, it reflects how the portfolio is positioned. I'll run through that in a second. It's worth noting that the share price total return was down 10.8% as the discount wind up for just 0.2% to 5.5%. But the underperformance was a result of being underweight large pharmaceutical companies and overweight both emerging markets, which includes Chinese healthcare companies and emerging biotech companies. And again, this is very much been the long-term positioning of this particular investment portfolio. Gearing also detracted in the period. But it was that rotation from growth to value and a risk-off backdrop that really proved difficult for this fund and also the fall in the value of biotech stocks, which they made the point that fall was not accompanied by any significant deterioration in the performance of the underlying companies. So although these biotech uh, companies got hit very, very hard, the fundamentals, by which we mean the results, were not impacted, and nor would you expect them to be. They made the point in the manager's commentary that there's no suggestion that in a higher inflation rate environment or a higher interest rate environment, that that has any implications for biotech stocks. I mean, quite often those companies' results or the performance the share price forms is as a result of drug discovery. So going through the various drug trials successfully, and that's the bigger factor in whether these companies actually prove to be good investments or not. Worldwide Healthcare Trust made four new investments in unquoted companies. One was in India, three were in China, and 7% of the portfolio was exposed to unquoted at the end of March. They also, funnily enough, issued some shares earlier on in the period when they raised about £46 million or so, and they bought shares back worth about £3 million. So it seems to me what the significance of this one, particularly Worldwide Healthcare Trust, which I think is quite a widely owned trust. I mean, the share price has basically gone back. It had a terrific run after the pandemic sell-off, and it's now pretty much back to where it was before the pandemic. But uh, the big difference is that it's now trading at a discount, which historically has not been... It's experience, really. Uh, uh, looking back at least five years, it's normally traded around par. What kind of rating do you think it's on at the moment, according to your figures? Yeah, so I've got Worldwide Healthcare Trust on about a 7% discount. Uh, biotech growth, probably on about a 1-2% discount. Okay, so that's going be interesting to see whether that one rebounds. Well, I guess the so general story, we just talked about six investment trusts all overseas, all of which have lost money for shareholders, and in some cases, quite dramatic amounts. It does show that even great investment trusts do have bad periods, let's put it that way, should we say. And active management is difficult in difficult periods like this. If you get it wrong, you get the big calls wrong, you're going to get punished. But of course, you can hope that they will then go back to form over time. Okay, we've got a couple of property trusts to talk about. One is uh, TR Property, ticker TRY. They've had annual results for the same period, the year to 31st of March. And this one uh, is only partially a direct property company. I think it's fair to say they invest mainly in uh, property company shares rather than directly into property itself, uh, at least for the majority of its portfolio. So uh, tell us about this one. How is this one done? Well, it's outperformed. It's done rather well, actually. So in contrast to most of the results we've run through today. So for the period to the end of March, these are annual results. The NAV total return was up 21.4%. That compared to a rise of 12.2% for its benchmark. In share price terms, that came in at 19.9%. Uh, the discount just widened out a little bit. But the relative performance was helped by a tilt towards index-linked income and also a number of M&A transactions as well. The physical property portfolio that you just mentioned, and that represented about 7% or so of the portfolio at the end of April, in this period, that was up 18.1%. And also revenue earnings per share, that increased by 12% to 13.7p and they've paid dividends or the dividends have totaled 14.5p so in other words that was slightly uncovered but Marcus Fair Mudge hugely experienced property investor I think for people interested in property per se a very very insightful investment managers report talks about how post the pandemic the portfolio has been repositioned so we're talking about the end of 2020 early part of 2021 so basically closing the underweight to european shopping centers renewing office exposure and with a real focus on those with shorter commute times an emphasis on rental growth and security of income and also inflation protection as well so i would suggest that those kind of themes that he's played in the portfolio is one of the reasons or probably the key reasons why it's outperformed in this period 
Okay, so finally then we can mention Aberdeen European Logistics Income, ticker ASLI. This has had a Q1 update. Yep, and the euro NAV per share was up 1.9% in that three-month period. In sterling terms, a little bit better actually, up 2.6%. And obviously uh, sterling's been a little bit weaker for the first few months of this year. But the like-for-like property valuation, that increased 2.5%, so all positive news. And it was valued at 683 million euros at the end of March. Uh, That increase reflected inflation-linked rental growth, obviously a key theme at the moment in the property sector, and some yield compression as well. There's also some good news on the rent collection front. In the first quarter of 2022, 100% had been collected in, and the update made the point that 70% of income is subject to full annual indexation. Uh, They've also declared a dividend of 1.41 euro cents as well, which is equivalent uh, in sterling terms about 1.19p. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the announcements this week. I should mention, for anybody who's interested in the Moneymakers Circle, we have actually have a profile of Warehouse REIT this week, which is obviously in this logistics area. And, well, I think that's been interesting. And we had that news from Amazon about uh, it clamping down a little bit on uh, on its kind of use of property, of warehouses and so on. But uh, do you think this sector, this sector sold off a bit? Has it not, Simon? What do you think about this sector? No, it definitely has sold off a bit. I mean, we've seen the discounts widen out. I think we talked about Warehouse REIT Recently, we've also talked about the Tritax funds, the Tritax Eurobox fund. That's gone out to about a 23% discount at the moment. Tritax Big Box, which is the UK-focused one, that's still on a premium rating. But it's certainly an interesting area. Amazon or Amazon's news has had an impact on the share prices of a number of these vehicles. And I think for people who are interested in value, that's certainly caught their attention. Indeed. Okay, well, that's what we want to talk about, value and the future. But uh, in the meantime, I can only uh, wish everybody who's listening an enjoyable Jubilee weekend. And uh, we'll look forward to discussing things again next week when, uh, well, obviously we have a couple of days of US market will be open next couple of days, so things could change. But uh, in the meantime, that's it from us. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.